When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi. We're interrupting normal broadcasting to bring you an episode of the brand new series, Historicity which explores how cities got to be the way they are through a series of audio walking tours. The podcast team here at Open City have really enjoyed following the first series, which dives into London's vibrant past and how it has formed the landscapes and social structures we see today. This final episode, titled Leisured City, covers the transformation of the West End as wealth is invested, hierarchy reproduced and luxury consumed in its streets and square. We really hope you enjoy it and be sure to check out the rest of the series on the Historicity feed, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Historicity, where we turn back time to see how cities got to be the way they are. I'm Angus Lockyer. I've been teaching and writing history for over 20 years. But when I want to think about how the past became the present and where we might go next, I head outside, walk the streets and pick apart the layers. And I'm Jelena Sofronievich. I'm fascinated by the way that history and politics and culture intersect. How our imperial pasts have left their trace on our material present, not least in the streets. In this walk, Leisured City, we're exploring the West End of London, where squares and streets were built on aristocratic estates, and where the wealthy have flocked ever since. Not that the rich have had everything their own way. Some neighbourhoods proved less desirable than their owners might have wished. Others have seen retail, and worse, trespass on elite enclaves. But if the East End has always been where the real work of the city gets done, the West End is where those with the readies come to invest and to spend it. In recent years, much of the spending has come from overseas. As ever, a couple of notes before we get underway. We've designed these walks to follow on foot, but we know that you might not be on the streets. You can download maps and transcripts from the episode notes. If you're on the street, you'll find that we're quite fast walkers, But of course, you can listen to this at your own pace. Just change the speed on your podcast app to suit yourself. In this second episode, we'll see how one part of the West End came down in the world, while another stayed up. Soho and St. James's started up at more or less the same time. By the 19th century, though, there was a clear divide. It was reinforced when Regent Street became a barrier between the neighbourhoods where you kept your wealth to the West and the places where you spent it to the east, courtesy of immigrants and others who knew how to have a good time. 
We'll start the story more recently, though, outside the brand new Tottenham Court Road station. It's where the northern and central lines cross and where the new Elizabeth line has almost made the past invisible. We'll meet you there. So here we are at Tottenham Court Road. We're between two entrances to the tube here. We're on the southeast corner of Bloomsbury where we ended the last episode. It's clearly a major intersection. We've got two main roads crossing. We've got three subways underneath and it's been transformed in recent years. But we've got to peel back the layers a bit. What have we got? Ahead of us, we've got a strange gold wall with adverts playing, turning round from the gold wall. Straight ahead of me, I've got Tottenham Court Road. It's a very old road, leads north to a manor house. By the 17th century, it's a place for entertainment. It has a gooseberry fair. By the 19th century, there's furniture making here. By the early 20th century, there are big department stores. And then in the middle of the 20th century, it starts selling actually surplus World War II radio equipment and then Japanese electronics. That's Tottenham Court Road. It intersects with Oxford Street, which we've met before. It's the old main road out of the city. By the 19th century, it's a problematic area. There are new roads built here to clear the slums in this neighbourhood, to improve the traffic flow. The one we're actually standing on is Charing Cross Road, built right at the end of the 19th century, soon becomes Bookshop Central. Foyle's very famous bookshop just down the street. But the real story here starts off in the post-war, after World War II. The London County Council wants to improve the traffic flow. Cars are taking off. But this provides an opportunity for developers, not the aristocratic developers we talked about in the last episode, but new modern developers. Very cannily, they buy up areas around main intersections. And then if the London County Council wants to develop them, the developer gets waivers on all the rules about what you can develop and how, on density, on height. And the one we're looking at next to this gold wall is Centre Point. It's one of the first tower blocks in London. The London County Council in return gets some land for a roundabout which it in fact never builds. That was its grand idea here. And the developer is called Harry Hyams. He hires a man called Richard Seifert. We met him briefly in the last episode. He trained in the 1920s-30s in the University of London. And over the years in the post-war period, he develops 600 buildings. He's known for not being very public, but delivering projects on time and on budget. He is the developer's darling. The critics at the time hate almost everything he made. And this is one of the famous ones. The developer made out like a bandit. He invested 3.5 million. He left the whole building empty while it appreciated because of where it was. And he eventually cashed out with an 11 million profit nice money if you can get it. By that point this area is changing just to our south beyond the gold wall here. We've got Denmark Street, 17th century street, making metalwork by the 19th century. In the 1930s it's known as Little Tokyo. It's where Japanese restaurants are setting up. But in the post-war period, it becomes the centre of the music scene. It's a place where publishers operate, there are studios, there are music shops. The Rolling Stones record in number four, Denmark Street. The Sex Pistols live in number six. Bowie hangs out at a cafe at number nine. It's an important place. But fast forward 50 years, more or less, and the world has moved on. Electronics on Tottenham Court Road have moved online. Music has become big business. Books, thank God, are still with us. But the city still needs connecting. We never have the infrastructure we need. And so Crossrail comes to town. 
This is the story here. This is one of the main intersections for this new fast east-west line linking London together. Around the station there are one billion pounds worth of development. They knocked down an old theatre, the Astoria. It was a warehouse in the 1920s. It becomes a big music venue by the 1980s. Acid House gets going here. And what's replaced it is this gold wall. It's Outernet London. I don't know who came up with the name. It's just opened. It includes a 2,000-person capacity venue, a 465-quid-a-night hotel, and according to the CEO, it is, quote, the world's largest, most advanced atrium of content, a disruptive, atomized brand engagement platform. In other words, this is building as advertising. This is where London now is. But all of this exists because it's on the boundary of several great estates, dating way back four centuries. Those estates are themselves divided by an old Roman road. It makes sense to put modern roads here. We can hear the traffic on them in the background. And therefore, also, because it's a major intersection, it's a good place to put other things, like subways, like offices, like shopping, which we see around us today. But, as we already know from the first episode in this walk, life in the West End is not lived at the main intersections. It's lived in the smaller squares, the smaller streets, the cafes, the smaller venues, above a shop where you can begin to record your first album, perhaps. So we're going to walk into Soho. Leave the gold wall on your left and cross the street. Go between the two new modern blocks on the other side of Charing Cross Road. Walking between those two modern buildings, on our left we can see a red brick church and you can hear the bells. We're crossing the road now and we're aiming for this strange, misshaped, timber-framed building in the middle of the square. We're going to stand next to that and look at what's around us. So here we are in Soho Square, next to this strange little building, with a whole jumble of buildings around the sides of the square. We know that Bloomsbury Square was the first of the squares of the West End, and it was soon followed by three others. St James, which we're going to see in the second half of this episode, Soho, where we are now, and Hoxton, which we saw on a previous walk around the East End. These days, of course, all of these are very different places, and that story of how they become different tells you a lot about what they're about. The story here in Soho Square is familiar. It used to belong to religious foundations. Henry VIII seizes it. He turns it into a hunting park. That's where the name Soho comes from. Originally, it's a hunting cry. So he would ricochet around this area trying to hunt down animals. 
Soon enough, the crown, actually, Elizabeth I, is giving away bits of it. The crown always needs money, supporters, and things like that. And then, a hundred years later, after the restoration in 1660, it's built up by a whole assortment of developers. They're generally following the old field system here, which runs north-south. It means most of the streets here in Soho are north-south. It's difficult to get from east to west. And also, it's not a single estate. There are multiple owners here, so there's much less coordination. But here in Soho Square, you have one person responsible. This is built up in the late 17th century by a bricklayer, actually, and a timber merchant, not an aristocrat. A century later, it's fallen on hard times. To fast forward the story a little bit, the rich are moving out of this area. They're also beginning to move out of Bloomsbury, which we've already talked about in the previous episode. They're moving west to Mayfair and to Marylebone. We'll meet them in our next episode. And much more interesting people are moving in. In the first case, we're talking about immigrants. The Huguenots, we met them in the East End in Spitalfields. In the late 17th century, they start getting persecuted in France. They are welcome here. In Spitalfields, they're making silk. Here, they specialize in metalwork, watches, things like this. There are some chapels for them by the end of the 17th century. In the late 18th century, it's the Irish coming in. By the middle of the 19th century, it's European refugees as various European countries fall apart and actually come into existence. So in the 1860s, you have Italians. There's an Italian hotel and restaurant employees benefit society founded in 1886. And there's still pretty good Italian food and delis, importantly, in Soho. Then the French. There's a mini-revolution in France in 1870. The state cracks down and the communards people who were supporting the Paris Commune flock here. In July 1871, Marx, who's also living in London at that point, says that London is overrun with refugees. Mainly that's to the north of here in Fitzrovia, but a few of them here in Soho. Early 20th century, more refugees. World War I brings us Belgians. One of the most famous patisseries in London is set up by a Belgian refugee at that point, Patisserie Valerie, and more Italians, and on and on and on. Immigrants make Soho in large part. Also, artists and intellectuals. Mozart actually lived in Soho in the late 18th century for a little bit, or at least spent a little bit of time here. Marx, of course, lived here in the late 19th century. So from very early on, Soho was a refuge for immigrants, for artists, and in the 20th century for the queer community, of course, who face pushback. Some of their clubs are shut down in the 1930s. So the area becomes much richer socially, if not financially, and much more mixed. You've got trade and manufacture here. By the 19th century, Soho is quite overcrowded. You get model housing, you get mansion blocks as opposed to terraced houses. You get entertainment, including eating, importantly, from the late 19th century. Film and media are here in the 20th century. Soho now is the global hub of post-production for Hollywood. I like to think that even Tom Cruise depends on some basements near to where we are. But that's all been made possible also by a crackdown on earlier things that were here, notably sex work. Sex work takes off in Soho in the 60s. It's beginning to be cleaned up, as the phrase has it, in the 70s. So here's P.D. James in the 60s talking about the mix that Soho has become. Soho is all things to all men, catering comprehensively for those needs which money can buy. You see it as you wish. An agreeable place to dine, a cosmopolitan village tucked away behind Piccadilly with its own mysterious village life, 
one of the best shopping centres for food in London, the nastiest and most sordid nursery of crime in Europe. Even the travel journalists, obsessed by its ambiguities, can't make up their minds. So Soho Square today bears witness to this rich mix. In the square itself, in the garden, we've got this strange misshaped building. That's actually fake. It's built in the 1920s to look as if it's four centuries older. It hides an electricity substation, of all things. In front of it, we've got a statue of Charles II. He let in the Huguenots in the 1660s. And around the square, we have all kinds of things. In the northwest corner, there's a kind of grey brick structure... That's a warehouse built in 1801 for John Trotter. He was the storekeeper general in the wars against Napoleon. And in 1816, he converts it, after the war, to the Soho Bazaar, a quasi-charitable market for female and domestic industry. We've got two churches on the square. Next to Trotter's warehouse, we've got the French Protestant Church, a congregation that had been in existence for three centuries by then, but that's a late 19th century building. On the other side of the square, we walk past another red brick church. That's St. Patrick for the Irish Catholics who are here, and that again replaces an earlier mission chapel. On the south side, we've got a whole range of wonderful things. We've got a beautiful 18th century house, which in the 19th century became the House of St. Barnabas, a homeless charity, and still is today, although it's also been turned into a private members club. In the middle of the south side of the square, cream stucco, we've got something that was rebuilt in 1865 as a hospital for women. That was founded a few years earlier, and it was the first hospital in the world that was open to women of all classes. And then in the corner next to the hospital, we've got a building for 20th Century Fox, built in the 1930s. Film, charity, immigration, this is the story of Soho. From the first, it's been a magnet for immigration, for innovation, for personal expression, and so also for people who are looking for a good time and for people who are looking to exploit that desire. There is supply and demand in Soho too. And this becomes even clearer when we leave the square and start walking the streets. So now we're going to leave the square to the west. We've got our back to the building and to St. Patrick's Church, as well as Charles II. We're heading for the street between Sunrider Europe and Number 37 Soho Square. Head down that street, Carlisle Street. We're heading down Carlisle Street now. At the end of it, we can see a building. Originally, that was actually a 17th century mansion bombed in the war. But we're heading left on Dean Street and then turning right almost immediately on St Anne's Court. We're now on this short little stretch of Dean Street and we've got the wonderful contrast here. We've got number 88, which is actually a newsagent, but this incredible late 18th century frontage, very decorated. And then on the left, a block by the Soho Housing Association, a partnership between the Soho Society, who want to conserve Soho, and the council, providing much-needed housing, this one from the 1980s. But again, we're now turning right on St Anne's Court. 
So we're heading straight down St Anne's Court between restaurants on both sides as well as the Good Housekeeping Institute. At the end we're going to turn left on Wardour Street and again quite quickly turn right on Broadwick Street. We've turned left on Wardour Street. We're going to turn right almost immediately on Broadwick Street. Just pausing here to look at 141. Crazy building, kind of corrugated steel almost, built in the 1930s for Warner Brothers. Film rooted here early. Leave it on your left and continue down Broadwick Street. We're walking down Broadwick Street now. When you see Berwick Street, just stop there by the Blue Post pub. Broadwick Street is, again, very early. It's late 17th century and then develops thereafter. Obviously, none of this is from that period. It's all later. If you look left, you've got a very striking building, steel-framed, lots of glass. This is also Richard Rogers. We've met him many times before. He's the one who did the Lloyds building in the city. And it's facing across the street, something which was originally, again, for the movie industry, for Warner Brothers now being turned into a boutique hotel. If we continue down Broadway Street a couple more blocks, we would find a pump. This is commemorating the famous discovery by John Snow in the middle of the 19th century that cholera is not transmitted by air, but by water. The pump that used to be there in the middle of the 19th century was infecting the whole neighborhood. If you want to find out more about that story, I suggest reading Stephen Johnson's book, Ghost Map. But we're turning left on Berwick Street and immediately we can smell and hear the food stalls that are now congregated here. This is all very recent. In the early 21st century though, so only 20 years ago, a critic noted that Berwick Street was Soho at its roughest, battered 18th century houses, plainish later building, mostly old-fashioned trades. We'll see them, fabric shops and other things, as we walk down the street. There's been a market here since the late 18th century. By the turn of the 20th century, there are two rows of 50 stalls selling meat, fish, fruit, veg, raw ingredients, in other words, for the people who live here in the restaurants close by, not the finished products we see today. Then, in the 1950s, late 1950s, the council builds the tower block you see in front of us, 57 council flats in 17 storeys. 20 years ago, though, this area, too, is ripe for gentrification. There's a big fight about it. The tenants in the council block do not like the plans, but it's gone ahead. And as we walk down the street, it's clear that the street has changed. We still have a fabric shop, but we also have a lot of clothing shops as well. 
We don't have a street market anymore. We have food stalls. Continue down Berwick Street past the food stalls. We'll meet you at the end. We're at the end of Berwick Street now. We've passed the food stalls, a few remaining fabric shops, clothes shops, exciting retail opportunities, new units available for rent. And we're pausing here because we're about to enter Walker's Court. This is the epicenter of another property empire worth lingering on. Paul Raymond opens the Raymond Review Bar in 1958. It's still there at the far end of this court. And within two years, it has 45,000 members. It's a members-only strip club. He buys the freehold. He gets into soft porn publishing in the mid-1960s. But he also starts to build up his property empire. So when the council cracks down on the sex industry on the strip clubs, the sex shops and so on, he's ready to jump to a new business venture. He builds up a portfolio of 400 properties and at one point he's thought to be the richest man in England thanks to the value of those properties. He died though in 2008. We're continuing through Walker's Court. It still has one of the last remaining sex shops in Soho, then turning left on Brewer Street. We're at the end of Walker's Court now. When we glance up, we can see Raymond's review bar still in operation across the street. Prowler, a booty full of fun. Turn left on Brewer Street, then right on Wardour Street. We've turned right on Wardour Street now. It's an old lane. On our left, we can see Old Compton Street. This is really the center of the queer community in London. Back in the 18th century, a French enclave. It's seen troubles over the years, even as recently as 1999. There was a neo-Nazi bombing here of a very popular gay pub, the Admiral Duncan. Now we've got St Anne's. We can see a churchyard on our left, an old church, a strange early 19th century tower, bombed in the war and been converted. Now what you've got is a mixed-use scheme. You've still got a small chapel, you've got a rectory, but you've also got the premises for the Soho Society, who are trying to conserve the neighbourhood, and 20 flats for the Housing Association. We're continuing down Wardour Street and we're going to cross Shaftesbury Avenue. So we've crossed Shaftesbury Avenue, we had a couple of theatres on our right, and we can see ahead of us the lanterns which tell us we're in Chinatown. But Chinatown is recent. Chinatown has only been here since the 1970s. That's when the Chinese community in London relocates from Limehouse, close to Canary Wharf, over in the east, to here, and it's built up in these last 50 years. And before Chinatown, of course, there are other things. We're glancing to our right now. We can see a sign for a theatrical costumia, which is a spectacular front, and he's showing off for his potential clients. 
We're continuing down Wardour Street. On our left, we have Gerrard Street, the main artery of Chinatown. Old buildings converted to new uses, together with gateways. These were put up in 1985 at the three main entrances. We're continuing down Wardour Street to another one, more recent, put up in 2016. We've passed Gerard Street, we're almost at the gateway, but we're turning left on Lyle Street. We're then going to take the next right, Leicester Street. So we've walked down Leicester Street and here we are in Leicester Square and you can hear it going on all around us. There's a street performer going off, there's a Christmas market, there's chaos, as there always is. We're less than half a mile from Soho. We're in another square, but they're very different. They're obviously very different. What's going on? Roll the story back. 17th century, another aristocrat, the Earl of Leicester, gets a license to build a mansion on the north side of the Royal Mews. We met the Royal Mews in our last episode. It's where we started. He gets that license in return for laying out the land with walks for the benefit of the parish, but he doesn't really observe the agreement. He encroaches on them, and basically the square as we see it today is a kind of piecemeal development. His mansion is over in the northeast corner of the square. is isn't a square at all. It's a very strange shape. And then others start building around him, filling in the streets leading north to Soho. Like Soho, it stays fashionable for a bit. Artists and intellectuals start coming. Isaac Newton lived here, Joshua Reynolds, William Hogarth, who of course gave us the depiction of Gin Lane we met in the last episode. The square goes downhill rapidly, though, when the streets to east and west are extended. Traffic starts coming through. Hotels and entertainment begin to take over. There's a great globe here in the middle of the square in the middle of the 19th century when spectacle is beginning to take off. And around the garden now, a reconstructed garden, we see the various palaces, largely cinemas, devoted to popular culture. Two striking ones to note. On the north side of the square, you've got something that looks quite crazy. It's actually Cinquecento. It's meant to be from the 15th century. It's meant to be in Venice. But in fact, it's copying a theatre from Cincinnati. Originally, this Empire Theatre had 3,226 seats in one auditorium. It's since been subdivided. The way we show movies has changed. On the other side of the square, an Odeon cinema, very austere in many ways, now a digital front. And that replaces other things too. It replaced a late 19th century theatre with minarets, of all things which replaced a panopticon of science and art. Leicester Square, since the 19th century, has been about entertainment. So two squares, two different worlds. Soho's bars and cafes, Leicester Square's big screens. But they have things in common too. Culture in this part of the West End has always been popular and democratic, if not always cheap. But they're both quite different from the places we're going to explore in the second half of this episode and the next episode, where wealth has its way. To get there, we're just going to walk a little bit west along Coventry Street. This little street condenses the way entertainment has changed over the years.
We're walking down Coventry Street now. On our right, we've got this glass building, quite recent from 2008. It used to be the Swiss Centre, a modernist showcase for Swiss culture. We've got a couple of totem poles in the middle of the street with the cantons of Switzerland displayed on them. Those used to be on the roof of the former building. This building now dedicated to M&M Candy as well as a W Hotel tells you something about the area around Leicester Square. We're now crossing Whitcomb Street. If we look to our right, we can see the gateways of Chinatown. And we can see coming up on our right the Trocadero. There's a lot to say here, but all you really need to know is it's always been about entertainment. Originally it was a tennis court, then in the 19th century there was a circus, a subscription theatre. It became a renowned centre for prostitution in the late 19th century. And then it opens right at the end of the century as this, the Trocadero, which becomes the centre of mass catering in the West End. It's bought by Jay Lyons. They are originally cake makers responsible for Bakewell tart, among other things. They open a restaurant here, then they open a corner house where you can get a nice cup of tea, and then a huge place in the 1920s with 3,000 seats. That all closes down in the 1960s, and the Trocadero reopened in the 80s. If you go inside, what you'll find is a vast windowless void leading to shops, to cafes, to cinemas, and so on. But I suggest walking on. So continue down Coventry Street. Now on our left, we can see Haymarket, another ancient lane. In the middle of the 17th century, there is a market for hay here. That's what the name means. And it serves the Royal Muse. We met them in the last episode. So we're crossing Haymarket and we find ourselves in Piccadilly Circus. We're going to pause by Eros, the statue in the middle. So we've made it through the crowds to Piccadilly Circus, but there are many people here. And we've got the first part of our story. We've got the development of areas north of the newly fashionable palace in the late 17th century, following the lead of Covent Garden, which we talked about in our first episode. Like Covent Garden, Soho has a slow evolution and a decline in some eyes in the 18th century as immigration and as immigrants begin to do their work. And then the whole thing is transformed in the 19th and 20th century with more immigrants, different kinds of activities, the turn to mass entertainment and the attempts by authorities to keep things in check. In the second half of the episode, we'll go through the looking glass to a very different world. But this is a good place to pause the podcast and think about what we've seen so far. For the rest of this episode and this walk, just follow the link in the show notes of this podcast or search Historicity London, Leisured City 2, Social Divide. Historicity is written and presented by Angus Lockyer and produced by Jelena Sofronievich. See the episode notes for the other walks and follow Historicity wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.